This morning, um, I want to talk about the Father. A lot of people are afraid of the Father. I've actually heard people say, you know, I like Jesus, but boy, this Father God thing just kind of scares me. And um, if we if we read what Jesus had to say when he came to the earth in the Gospels, and even the things that Paul had to say, uh, one of the greatest reasons that Jesus came was to reveal the Father. The 18th verse of John chapter 1, if you look at it in the Greek, and some, of the, some other translations, I think it's the contemporary English version. Jesus actually says these words, he says, I came to show you what God is like. And so if you want to know what God is like, God the Father is like, then just look at Jesus in the pages of the Gospels. In the 14th chapter of John, uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in, I think, the 16th chapter of John, uh, Jesus told the disciples, he said, I'm not going to ask. You ask the Father because he loves you. He said, when the Holy Spirit has come in that day, don't ask me for anything. You ask the Father in my name. And, and so, in other words, Jesus came to reveal the Father so we would build a relationship, have a relationship with the Father. And the thing about the Father I want to talk to you about today is his generosity that God is such a generous, a generous God. Um, and to understand that and to understand we have the nature of God and that God's generosity breeds generosity in us. And so I'm going to look just at a very small samplings. I mean, there's so many verses that talk about the generosity of God. But we're, I'm, we're just going to look at, at a couple uh, and I like to look at a lot of different translations. In the New Life version, John 3.16 is so beautiful. John 3.16 is beautiful in any translation. Uh, to me, John 3.16 expresses his generosity probably more so than any other verse. But in the New Life translation, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He so loved that he gave. He so loved that he gave. Giving is a fruit of love. God so loved that he gave his only son. Whoever puts his or her trust in God's son will not be lost, but will have life that lasts forever. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in the, in the Passion Translation, it says, Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place while we were still lost and ungodly. And so there's, there's something about the nature of God in generosity where his generosity extends to the lost. If it, doesn't, if it didn't extend to the lost, we would all be in a bad way. <laughs> while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so... God, Christ proved God's passionate love for us by dying in our place. Uh, and uh, like I said, those are just a couple. Uh, and this is his generosity in redeeming us to himself. 
we'll see a later a little bit later but let me say it now and i'll repeat it later generosity requires paying a price if i'm generous it's going to cost me and, and that's something we need to understand god's generosity in sacrificial giving is a fruit it's actually the most significant fruit of his love for people his generosity in sacrificial giving is the most significant fruit of his love for people. This is what the Greek calls agape love. There's six or seven words in the Greek for love. Agape is the love that God expresses. It's, it's something born in his heart towards something that nobody else values except him. He places value. And it's selfless and sacrificial. Selfless and sacrificial. In other words, the greatest quality of real love is sacrifice. Uh, marriage. If, if I really love Nita, I'm going to pay a price. And if she really loves me, she found out there was a great price to pay in loving me. So... Love pays a price. If, if I'm going to love, I mean, we, we have the idea of romantic love. It's a selfish love. You know, I love you because of the way you make me feel. I mean, most of the romantic songs are not about I'm going to die for you. The most, roma most of the romantic songs are how you make me feel and, uh, you know, and all of that. And, and there's a place for that. That's puppy love. That's something else. But it's not the kind of love that pays a price. Love always pays a price. Because we are born of God, his love is alive in us. Paul mentioned this last Sunday morning in Romans 5.5. 5. I'm going to read it in the Bible in basic English translation. It's very good. Our hearts are full of the love of God through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. So his love is in us. Now, obviously, we have to walk in that love. We have to demonstrate it. We have to pay a price to love people. It's there, but we have to act on it. His great love, and this is so important, his great love is what fuels his extravagant generosity. And that's shown in Romans 8:32 in the Passion Translation. For God has proved his love by giving us his greatest treasure, the gift of his Son. And since God freely offered him up as the sacrifice for us all, he certainly won't withhold from us anything else he has to give. Now think about that. If I had a problem with this the last time. <laughs> if God did not withhold Jesus, why would he withhold lesser things? I mean, if he gave the greatest, why would he give less? I think the New King James here says that he offered up freely his son. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? My left hand is Jesus. God offered him up, and with Jesus, he gives everything. He's not stingy. And we have a tendency to want to beg God, and there's no place in Scripture that it says, I'm going to bombard the gates of heaven. Why do that? <laughs> he lives in us. Anyway. 
Because his love is alive in us, so is his generosity alive in us. In Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45, and verse 48, in the Montgomery New Testament, this demonstrates how his generosity is alive in us. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. We hate our enemies. Some people used to say, well, I can love you from a distance. Not biblically. I mean, if somebody's in a distance, you can love them. But not biblically. You, you have to love in a way that you demonstrate it. Pray for those who persecute you. And we'll see a similar thing in Luke 6. In this way, you show that you are children of your Father in heaven. God loves his enemies. I was an enemy of God when he saved me. I used to blaspheme. I used to curse God when I was a reprobate. But God demonstrated his love. He kept pursuing me because he had a purpose for my life. By doing, in this way, by loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, you are showing that you are children of your Father in heaven. And there's, for he makes his Son to rise on sinners as well as saints, and he sends rain upon the just and the unjust. You know, I've heard people use that verse that God causes it to, the sun to shine uh, on sinners and saints, and he sends his rain upon the just and the unjust, and they use the sun as the positive and rain as negative. That's crazy. Rain's not negative. We need rain. God provides sun, which is good, and rain, which is good, for both sinners and saints. Hmm? He does, absolutely. And then verse 48, You then must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a word that's very much misunderstood. Uh, the word perfect... In, in the Greek, uh, does in some places mean perfect. But I want to tell you, nobody here is perfect, and nobody here is going to attain perfection. This word used here because it has a secondary meaning, which is mature. Be mature like your father is mature. In other words, demonstrate maturity by treating people with kindness, treating people with generosity. And then in Luke 6, a very similar, it's, it's, the, it, it's, it's the same passage in Luke, but Luke added some things that Matthew didn't, and Matthew didn't add some things that Luke did. Verse 35 of Luke 6, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, or you will demonstrate that you are sons of the Most High. For he is kind, listen to this, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Isn't that amazing? And he's telling us we need to be kind to ungrateful and evil people. I look at it this way, every human is precious in the sight of God. 
every human. They may be mixed up. They may be perverse in their thinking. They may be, they may be diabolical. I mean, I can give you testimony after testimony of people that were murderers that came to Jesus. Uh, the two most, uh, the two people who did all of the killing and all of the Manson murders became believers and in their prisons won many to Jesus. Uh, son of Sam, who was in uh, Long Island, New York, or somewhere around the New York City area uh, that killed several people, he got radically saved in jail and he has won many, many, many inmates to Jesus Christ. And, and we, we, we have a tendency, how is that possible? Because God changes hearts. He's generous. And we need to be generous. We need to be generous towards people. Uh, okay, it says, um, he's kind of ungrateful and evil. Verse 36, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Mercy is a manifestation of generosity. If I'm merciful towards you, that means that you've done something against me. And if I'm not merciful, I'm going to do something against you. So mercy is withholding what you deserve. Your action towards me deserves eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But if I'm merciful towards you, I'm going to withhold what you deserve. And mercy is a manifestation of generosity. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He says, give, and it will be given. Now, in this context... He's talking about giving, love, mercy, and forgiveness. Love, mercy, and forgiveness. And he says, give with good measure. Do you know what settling is when it comes to products in the store, like cereal boxes and potato chip bags? You know, you buy a bag of potato chips, you open it, and, and half, half of it's settled. I mean, it's just half full. Well, this is different from that. God says give with a good measure and like a cereal box, press it down, shake it real good, heap it over again and then shake it some more and press it down and keep giving until it's running over. So we give love, we give mercy, and we give forgiveness in good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. You know, Jesus at one time Different translations say different things. I think the Greek says 77 times, not seven, uh, seven times seven. But it's, 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 seven is, uh, is, is the perfect number, the number of eternity. In other words, we forgive and keep on forgiving. There's no end to it. That doesn't mean if it's 77, we forget seven, forgive 77, and then we get to 78. We don't anymore, no. It's symbolic language. In other words, we forgive and we keep on forgiving. Forgiveness is the first action that we should take when we are wrong, wronged. When someone wrongs us, it's not payback, it's forgive. Giving is generosity, 
and God is generous in all that he does. Generosity or giving, even as loving, also pays a price. If I'm going to give, I'm going to pay a price. We are his children like father, like children, as we saw just a minute ago. Winston Churchill said this, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Just as we see God's generosity in redemption, sacrificial love and forgiveness, etc., we also see his generosity in providing for us. Even as we love and forgive as he loves and forgives, it is godlike to give of our substance. God is not stingy. We should not be stingy. Responsible living is maintained by proper stewardship. Stewardship is such a big, big part of our Christian life. What is stewardship? It's the responsible overseeing and protection of something considered worth caring for and preserving. We're, we're stewards. In reality, we're not owners of anything. We're stewards. Uh, even Bob Dylan, in one of his songs, he said, you can't take it with you, and you know it's too worthless to be sold. That's a great line. It's a great song, actually. Uh, he walked with God for a while, and he may still be. I don't know, but he... If you've never had the album Slow Train Coming, you need to get it. Some of the best songs ever written. When he got radically saved back in 1978, I think. It was so funny. He was on, he was on um, Saturday Night Live back in 1978. And you know in the days of Saturday Night Live when, when, when it came on, they would just say, this is Saturday night. And somebody would come on and speak. Well, it opened that night. This is Saturday night. And Bob Dylan came out, and they gave him 20 minutes to sing his Christian songs. It was wonderful. Anyway, that's just a plug for that album. <laughs> waste is the enemy of good stewardship, and to waste just simply means to squander. And greed is a primary fuel of waste. Greed is a primary fuel of waste. Greed is excessive desire, especially for money, wealth, or possessions. Excessive desire. Greed always leads to the over-evaluation of material things. Madonna may be living in a material world, and she's a material girl, but people of the kingdom do not live in a material world, and we should not be material people. Greed or covetousness is idolatry. In Colossians chapter 3, in verse 5, in the English Standard Version, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous. Now, isn't that interesting? Right there, and these are not listed in ascending or descending order. These are all uh, uh, earthly things that we need to put to death in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and then covetousness. 
covetousness is greed. But Paul says covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. The last part of this verse in the Easy Read translation says, Don't keep wanting more and more for yourself, which is the same as worshiping a false god. You know, uh, we, we, we don't have as, as much idolatry in this nation that you'll, as you'll find in a lot of uh, other nations. Uh, you know, I've seen idolatry manifest. I mean, witchcraft rules in almost every nation of Africa. You'll see that here. But, but our idolatry is more sophisticated. You know, we lust after our neighbor's BMW or Mercedes-Benz or Bentley or whatever it may be. That's idolatry. If I covet, whatever I covet, I'm, 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 I'm uh, greedy for that. God, ha God has great desire to set us free from the love of money. He wants us to be free from the love of money, to not let money be the control of our lives. In this and all areas of life, how are we set free? We're set free by living the truth that we know. Jesus said after he had spoken the word in John chapter 8, it says many believed on him. Jesus says if you abide in my word or continue in my word or if you will continue hearing what I say and living it out, then truly you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So freedom comes by living out the truth that we know. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we're not obedient to the word of the Lord in stewardship, then we will not be free in the arena of money. So we have to embrace what he says. Uh, I, I know you know this, but this is what God says. This is God's word. This is not the writings of men. I'm not saying that the, they went into a spell and God took control of their hands and they wrote it down. But this is, you know, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, all scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped in every good thing. And the amazing thing is that when Paul wrote that to Timothy, the New Testament had not been written. And when he said all scripture is God breathed, he was referring to the Old Testament. And we have a tendency to dismiss the Old Testament. But we can't dismiss the Old Testament. There are certain things that after it passes through the cross, you know, there's no more blood sacrifice. Jesus is the final sacrifice. There's many, uh, there's many things about the, uh, the, the law, the ceremonial law and everything that after they pass through the cross, that's not valid for today, but we can still learn from it. But just because something is in the Old Testament doesn't mean we discount it. Because when Paul wrote that uh, to Timothy, he, he, there was no New Testament. He was speaking about the Old Testament. It's God-breathed. It's, it's what we see. And so God, you know, we, we put, God puts Jesus' name above every name. But the psalmist said that God has put his word above his name. He's put his word above his name. And so we have to understand that, that we, we, can't, we can't go contrary to thus says the Lord. 
and expect to see good fruit. So this is our rule for life. Truth is not relative. It is absolute. There's a funny thing going around in the world today called, well, that's your truth. No, truth is truth. Truth is truth. There's absolute truth about stewardship. It, it's, as, it's as certain as two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen always gets water. You don't get anything else. It's as true as five plus four equals nine. You don't ever get anything else. And truth about stewardship and anything that God gives us is the same. God is a great steward. He's not wasteful. He's not needy. He's not manipulative when it comes to money and material things. And we're to be the kind of stewards that he is. God is generous, and our new nature in Christ is generous. Our new nature in Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, in the English Standard Version. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That doesn't mean if you only have food and clothing, you can't have anything else. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And that word desire, there's several Greek words for desire, but the word desire used here means to set as your purpose. And it's all-consuming. So if you're if your all-consuming desire and the purpose of your life is to be rich, you're going to fall into temptation. Those who desired have, have set as their purpose in life, their all-consuming purpose, will fall into temptation. They'll fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and it plunges people into ruin and destruction, we've all seen that. I mean, people abandon their families over money. People do crazy things over money. And it goes on, it says in verse 10, which is such a significant verse, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money holding like a friend of mine says that when it when it comes to giving money people hold their money so tight that they squeeze the dollar bill until george washington is crying and people hold on to money so tight uh, the love of money hinders generosity the love of money hinders generosity it doesn't mean we're wasteful but the love of money hinders generosity. When it comes to money relative to church, there are two primary considerations. Number one is the tithe or the first fruits. Tithe means one-tenth. And then there's offerings. There's the tithe or first fruits, and the tithe means one-tenth, and then there's offerings. Let's talk about the tithe. Um, once again, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all scripture is God-breathed. I know Malachi is in the Old Testament. But when Paul wrote to Timothy, when he said all scripture is God-breathed, the New Testament was not written. It was not finalized until about the 
fourth century A.D. And so uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in the first century A.D. So when Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed, he was talking about the Old Testament. And nothing, nothing in the Old Testament passed through the cross that canceled the tithe. Actually, there's a greater responsibility in the New Testament than there was in the Old. But let's read this in Malachi 3. If you want to turn there, you can. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. I'm reading from the New King James on this. Verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? And God's answer is, In tithes and offerings. So it's a double robbery. So he's telling Israel, you have robbed me in tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And then he says, let's remedy that. And he says, bring all of the tithes into the storehouse. Now, I'm aware that in the Old Testament, it was not so much a monetary system as it was uh, grain and fruit and vegetables uh, and um, uh, chickens, I guess, whatever. But, but it, the storehouse is really talking about bring, bring the tithe of your crops. You can, you can study the law of the tithe and everything in the Old Testament, it was not so much a monetary thing. And so it's saying, bring all the tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was where there was food put up uh, and spices. Jesus said, you tithe of mint and anus and cumin, things of that nature. And he says that there may be food in my house. And, you know, I can't prove this, but... I, Here's the way I see the tithe in the New Testament. And this is our, this is our uh, value on it. Uh, the storehouse is the place where you're spiritually fed. Uh, the tithe is really for uh, the local church, where it's your local church, okay? Uh, it, it helps pay the bills. It helps pay the, uh, the pastor. Um, I'm not the pastor, uh, in other words, that's, that's what the tithe is for. That there may be food in my house. And, and the, the amazing thing is this is the only place in Scripture that God says to prove me or to try me or to test me. It's the same word in the Hebrew, uh, Greek, sorry, Hebrew here. And prove me or try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. He said, if you will bring the tithe into the storehouse and prove me, I'm going to open the windows and I'm going to pour out such blessing on you, you won't be able to receive it. And in addition, I'm going to rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. So tithing is, and there's many other places, there's a few places in the New Testament where it alludes to the tithe, 
But this is the greatest promise of the time. Now, here's the amazing thing. God tests our hearts by allowing us to hold in our position, possession, sorry. God tests our hearts by allowing us to hold in our possession 100% of our income. Now, let me talk. There's a difference between income and salary. Uh, most people have a salary, but income is greater than salary. Income is everything that comes in. Salary is what you get paid for your work. Uh, and income is, we're going to see in another verse, is increase. And so when, when I look at the tithe, I don't just look at salary. I look at income. Uh, in other words, the tithe is the income. So God tests our hearts by allowing us to hold in our possession 100% of our income. How does he test our heart in that way? The test is to see if we will return to him what is his. What is his, the tithe, one-tenth of the income. Now, to begin with, everything we have belongs to God. 100%. We're just stewards. We're just stewards. I, I can't just tithe and maybe give a little and then just waste the rest of it. No, I'm a steward. I'm a steward. There are times that God taps into the other as well. Everything we have is a hit, is his, 100% of all of it. We will be able to take nothing with us when we die. But the tithe is peculiarly God's. In Leviticus 27.30, it says, All of the tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So 10% of everything that comes to me is not mine. It belongs to the Lord. So he tests me by putting it into my possession to see what I will do with it. And when I tithe, what does it do? The tithe sanctifies and multiplies the other 90% so that we live more fully on 90% than we live on 100%. And so what does that mean? It means tithing is not giving. If all I do is tithe, I haven't given anything to God. I have returned to Him what belongs to Him. It is returning to the Lord what is His. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 in God's Word translation says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first and best part of all of your income. Honor Him. Honor Him with your wealth and with the first and best part, first fruits, which is the tithe. How do we honor God with it? We give it to Him. It's His. I can't touch it. It's His. Then your barns will be full and your vats will overflow with fresh wine. Well, we, we, don't, have, we don't have barns and, and we, we, we don't own vineyards. But God will take care of us when we do what is right. If tithing isn't, listen, this is something that's so important. Let's say, for example, today, you're not a tither. But Holy Spirit convicts you that you need to tithe. And so you give 10% to the Lord. Do you know what's going to happen immediately? By giving 10% of your income to the Lord, 
you're going to have less immediately. You're going to have less than you did before you tithed. But continuing to prove God by continuing to tithe will result in the more that God has promised. Initially, you have less, but eventually you see the return on that. He says, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out more than you contain. So that's the tithe, 10%. Offerings. When we give offerings, we are giving from the 90% left over after the tithe. Now, where do offerings go? Well, offerings, go to, they can go to your home church. They can go to missions. They can go to other ministries. They can go to the poor. Uh, there's tons of scriptures that talk about giving to the poor. One of, one of the best scriptures is, He that gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. There's so many scriptures about giving to the poor. Many things uh, you, can, you can give. Um, and let me, let me put it to you like this. Some people, when it comes to the tithe, uh, I used to do this. I would just, if, if, if my income was, uh, you know, for the month, $3,482, then my tithe was $348.20. But I don't do that anymore. I give above the tithe as my tithe. I always put an offering in with the tithe. The same thing. I just write it out because I don't want to just do a men I don't want to be a mentalist when it comes to generosity. And so, and I'm not bragging, I'm just simply saying that God has set me free from the love of money. And so when we tithe, we always give above the tithe and we we give offerings as well. Uh, so the offerings can go to many different places, but it's out of the 90%. Since the Lord said there's a double robbery by not tithing and giving offerings, I believe it's incumbent upon us to be tithers and givers. Special projects. I know that uh, there have been times, once again, I'm, I'm not bragging, I'm just simply saying freedom comes, and it's not, we, we don't have a great income. We're not poor people. But you, you would laugh if you saw the money that come, comes in on a regular basis. But when, when God speaks to us, we obey. And we've, we have been supporting a Christian lady in, in Ukraine who we met in Savannah, Georgia several years ago. And uh, it, it stretched us, but every time we have, we've always had enough. It's so exciting when you put God to the test on tithing and giving. As with the tithe, there are benefits or rewards for giving offerings. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. Now think about that. It says one person gives freely and gains more. Another keeps what he has and he becomes poor so what's the deal it makes sense to the natural mind that if i'll just hold on to my money i'll have more but in god's economy no if i give freely 
I'll gain more. If I withhold unduly, I'll come to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. When we think of giving offerings, we need to think of sowing seeds. Just think about that, sowing seeds. If a farmer doesn't sow seeds, think about a farmer. If a farmer says, okay, I'm just not going to plant this year. I want to keep my seeds. I'm not going to give that ground anything. I'm going to keep my seeds. If a farmer doesn't sow seeds, he'll only have seeds instead of a crop. And he can't be nourished by eating his seeds. If he sows seeds, he will have an abundant crop. So when, when we give, we're sowing seeds into a ministry, into the poor, into somebody in need, into missions. We don't give to get, but in God's economy, giving brings increase. We don't give to get, but in God's economy, giving brings increase. One of the best scriptures, there's many, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 10. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's up to you. Purpose in your heart. Let God lead you or just purpose in your heart. You know, in places where the offering basket is passed, I don't have a problem with doing that. Uh, nobody, the pastor or the deacons or the ushers, they're not coming and reaching in your purse and taking money from you and putting it in the offering plate. The bucket passes, and you must purpose in your heart what it is that you want to do. Do it not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency and all things, have an abundance for every good works. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now listen to verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So it says that God supplies two things. He supplies bread for food and seed for sowing. Our money includes bread for food. Our money includes what we can use to buy so that we can eat or clothes, for whatever. But it also, some that we get is seed for sowing. If we eat our seed, we limit our supply of bread. God provides seed for sowing. He provides bread for food. So if I keep my seed and eat it to begin with, it's not very nutritious, then I'm going to limit the amount of provision that I have. And so God wants to set us free from the love of money. It's greed, it's stinginess, it's fear. It's all of these things, the love of money that keeps us from being generous 
generous towards our church, generous towards missions. Uh, I, I, did, I, I read an article a couple of years ago on how much is spent on, uh, this, was, this was saying how much is spent on cosmetics as com in the church based compared to missions. It's a pittance that goes to missions. And missions should be one of the biggest things in our hearts that we want to contribute to. And so I'm just simply saying this. We're not trying to get your money. What we desire, God's not trying to get our money. He's trying to set us free. He doesn't want you to do this begrudgingly or of necessity. He wants truth to come to our hearts, to where we hear the truth and we see, yes, this is what God says. This is what God says is good. I need to be free from stinginess. I need to be free from the love of money. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that I can prosper in my own right, so that there can be more. I can be a free person. So I want all of us to bow our heads, close our eyes, not to be religious, but just to consider what the Lord has said this morning. I believe this is the Lord. I believe it's from his word. God wants us to be free. God wants us to be free. Uh, you know, I, I personally have no access to the books of the church. I could because I'm an elder, but I choose not to. Um, I, I know generally the money, but I don't know where it comes from. I, I know what comes in. I have no idea who it comes from, so I'm not picking on anybody. Um, I, I just know this, that if you're, if you're not a tither or a giver, it, it would behoove you to consider what we've heard today. Uh, and our desire, Nita's and my desire, is to increase in giving every single year uh, because it's beneficial for the kingdom and it's really beneficial to us as well. And so if, if, if you're not a tither or a giver, then I want you to prayerfully consider what the scriptures that we've considered today say and, and, and see what your response is going to be to that. If you're already a tither and a giver, then I encourage you to uh, consider possibly even increasing that uh, simply because it's beneficial for the kingdom, and it's beneficial for you.